You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Now we welcome you to an interview from the Hieronymus and Company archives. Our dear friend, the late Ingo Swan, joined us on February the 24th, 1999, for this interview. Well, for the past few weeks... You've heard me saying that every once in a while, there comes a book that is so profoundly important that I want to single it out and urge everyone to get a copy. When Zoe and I read over 500 books a year between us, and when we tell you one is especially important, you know we have chosen it from a very wide field. And I'm talking about penetration. The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy, written by our friend and respected colleague, Ingo Swan, who holds the title of the most rigorously tested psychic and structured military intelligence laboratory settings. What you will read in this book will utterly knock you off your feet. The bottom line is that all humans have a telepathic capacity which they can develop at will, and this is of the utmost importance to our survival as a species on this planet. In this book, Ingo reveals a series of long-held secret experiences with a deep black agency that left no paper trail and hence no written secrecy agreements, only verbal ones, which in Ingo's case expired several years ago. He tells of meetings held in a secret underground facility near Washington, D.C., and of being taken to a remote location near the Arctic Circle to witness the expected arrival of a huge UFO. Ingo also explores the fact that we officially know far more than we're admitting about the moon, its origins, its atmosphere, its occupants, and many other unusual features. I have known Ingo for over 20 years. He has been our guest on 21st Century Radio several times to discuss his earlier books, Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, Purple Fables, and The Great Apparitions of Mary. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Ingo Swan. Thank you, Dr. Bob. How have you been this evening, Ingo? Oh, hanging in. You're hanging in there, huh? Yeah, I'm hanging in. Well, so... It's been raining all day. (laughs) Well, it's a good day to hang. It's a good hobbit day to hang inside. Now, you noted that several people advised you not to publish this book. Why is that? Well, no, no legitimate publisher would publish it, so um, that was sort of a big thing in our lives. And uh, so I finally decided to publish it myself. Mm-hmm. And some people said that it would ruin my credibility. But, you know, it, my, I'm getting older now, and I don't know how much credibility matters anymore anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. went ahead and self-published this book. Well, why do governing societal factors need to deconstruct the provable existence of vital psi phenomena? We'll get right to the point here. Uh, You really are, aren't you? you? Yes, sir. Would you repeat the question? Certainly. (laughs) For for $30,000 and a free trip to Bermuda, here's the question. Okay. Why do the governing society factors need to deconstruct the provable existence of vital psi phenomena? As long as psi phenomena are in a minuscule kind of situation where they're not very effective, then they're no threat to the stability of social order and or the stability of power structures. But if we can imagine 
that some few people really develop their psychic powers. They could do a number of things uh, that would make life pretty tough for the status quo type of society. They could see the future, they could read people's thoughts, they could do this, they could do that, and everything like that. So um, in, in terms of society as a whole, it's even if uh, these abilities are inherent in our species, it's um, in, in, on behalf of the status quo, it's better to keep them in an undeveloped state. And you note that the societal resistance to psi breaks neatly into two aspects, to prevent psi development and to keep obscure the actual reasons for doing so. Yes. Now, how have uh, how has this manifested? How is it manifested? Yes, especially you, in... You mean in my experience? Well, your experience is a good one to, to point out, but I think it's happened to others as well. Well, um, you know, the, the, the essence of our species' psychic powers uh, comes up... Um, spontaneously in all cultures and in all kinds of people and everything like that. And rationally, these, these, these phenomena should be researched. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's one area of phenomena that are not researched. Uh, they're said to be superstitional, and no funding is ever, no serious funding is ever given to this kind of research. And if, if, it would be very easy to research these phenomena to prove that they didn't exist, but the fact that they're not researched, uh, it's quite credible that if they were researched, I'm sort of mixing my words up here, if they were researched, uh, then it could be shown that they do exist and there'd be a more demand for development of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, there goes the status quo society that uh, depends on not having psychic powers around. Psychic powers are a threat? To the status quo. Well, they're, they're a threat to certain kinds of uh, situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, look what would happen to the stock market if you had some psychics around that could really foresee the future of stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are there would be extreme advantages if these powers were really developed to a functioning type of level. This, so this and you know how competition is in societies, you know. I mean, everything is competition, getting the edge. But here's one edge that nobody wants to deal with because it, it would, it's not really controllable like a lot of other things are. Well, as you note, uh, if developed psi potentials were developed, that is, it would be an invasive threat to Earth-side intelligences, that's uh, we humans, and then developed Earth-side psi would be a threat to space-side intelligences. So you have a double whammy here in that Humans on this planet, the status quo, do not want to accept the existence of psi, and it would appear that space-side intelligences aren't interested in our developing it as well. Is that correct? Well, it's been my experience over 20 years of working in the field that the existence of psychic abilities is accepted by people who know things a great deal about what's going on in the world. It is accepted what is not wanted is it's not wanted to be developed to any great degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the ET connection is that uh, people who are abducted or claim to be abducted by ET say that they were communicated with telepathically, meaning that the ETs have highly developed powers of telepathy versus our own powers of telepathy, which are very low, which aren't very developed at all. Mm-hmm. So if we developed our powers of telepathy, then we could see the ET secrets as well as the Earth-side secrets. 
So there's a, yes, there is a double whammy there. Now concerning uh, UFOs, why are you convinced that UFOs and their intelligent control is a fact? Why aren't you swallowing the, the government line that <laughs> UFOs do not exist, even though 72% of Americans today believe that the government is lying to us about UFOs? Oh, I've been very, I've been through various phases about this, but right now I have to accept they do exist because of the weekly UFO update, which is reporting sightings of UFOs all around the world. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them, and uh, they're very clearly, um, I mean, and then there are the videotapes, you know, in the 50s and 60s when you could say the photographs could be faked, uh, the people could say they really didn't exist, but now they're with the age of camcorders when just about anybody can capture a UFO in flight or in motion or something like that. Mm -hmm. You just have to sit back and say, well, you know, they're here, they do exist, and that's it. Well, what convinced me that UFOs existed uh, once and for all was not only researching the subject, but the reports from the Freedom of Information Act, the 30,000 pages that were extracted from the files of the United States Air Force and Navy, DIA, CIA, NSA, NASA, etc., uh, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, and others, that UFOs do exist. And we've known it for, what, five decades, something like that? Well, probably more than that, actually, uh, but for certain since the 50s. Mm -hmm. now, it's not even a question anymore whether they exist or not. Well, I it mean, is a... It's, they just exist. It's, it's that simple. And people who are walking around saying they don't exist belong five, four, 60 decades ago. There's just no up-to-date on all the information that's available. The information available about the real existence of UFOs is just enormous. Enormous, yeah. And, and yet, we, indeed, we um, have a status quo that still is not interested in in looking at these. Th if I think that what we would all love to see is a court case in which you and the information was presented pro and con, because I have no doubt that's the how that court case would come out. But, you know, we still have folks on the radio all the time, especially at our station, that definitely believe that UFOs do not exist. And they, they, as a matter of fact, that's the that is the large, the vast majority of talk show hosts in this country um, say that kind of thing. Even though, especially on this station, eighty-six percent of our listeners do believe that UFOs exist, even though they hear this BS day in and day out that they don't. Now, your involvement with Psy Research began in 1971. And by late 1972, you participated in a CIA-funded tentative research project at Stanford Research Institute, headed by Dr. Hal Putoff, who has joined us numerous times here on 21st Century Radio. What were the results of that program, and what was accomplished? Well, the results of that first program was that the program went on for 15 years, and uh, that uh, number of um, psychic phenomena were confirmed. Uh, confirmed to the government oversight committees, uh, you know, ESP exists and so forth and so on. And remote viewing was developed um, to quite an interesting degree. Um, so it was just an ongoing thing that went on for a long time. Uh, 
reason for the ultra interest at that time was it was in a in started to answer the assumed threat of psychic developments in the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union sort of vanished, then there was no need to progress with this any, any further, so it was sort of let go. But um, a lot of stuff was discovered during those 15 or 16 years. Well, I think one of the things that you've changed considerably in psi research is how to get rid of boredom involved in <laughs> particular areas, and I'm glad that somebody did it. But in April 1973, you suggested an attempt to psychically go to Jupiter yes. before the Pioneer 10 got there in September 1973, and then you were then you compared notes, and when we return, we're going to find out the results. I found these exo- results extraordinary, Ingo. You must have cheated somehow. I'm sure that's how Psycop. <laughs> I'm sure that's how Psycop had to answer this, because you must you must have read the read a book up there or, or something before you saw these things up there on Jupiter. We'll talk about them when we return. Our guest is Ingo Swan. We're discussing his profound new book entitled Penetration: The Questions of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. We'll be right back after this. Hello, this is Tom McNear, a remote viewing student of the great psychic Ingo Swan and an original member of the Army's Stargate Psychic Program. You are listening to the amazing 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. We are back and returning now to our guest. Okay. Well, as you noted, Ingo, boredom is a big problem in psi research, and in order to alleviate some of the boredom, in uh, the routine research in April of 1973, you suggested an attempt to psychically go to Jupiter before the Pioneer 10 got there in September 1973 and then compare notes. What were the results? Well, it was a very gutsy type thing, you know. I almost wish I hadn't suggested it at the time. Um, Arrangements were made for me to say what I could about Jupiter, and these were all typed up and sent around to a lot of famous scientists to hold in their hands and uh, against the potential feedback, which would begin when the NASA uh, space flights got there. So I said a lot about Jupiter. I identified a ring around it, which everybody denied right off the bat uh, Mm -hmm. could be possible, and uh, uh, various things about the hot house house effect and... um, CO2 in the atmosphere and crystals and this and that and so forth and so on. And um, it was uh, the ring around Jupiter wasn't discovered until 1979, so there was a six-year waiting period for that one. But almost everything uh, appeared to be true uh, that I said, except I said there were some mountains on Jupiter, but people still deny that they're there. But one day they'll be found. Well, you made 13 points, and the minimum and of 12 of the 13 were on the money. Yep. That's extraordinary, Ingo. How did you cheat? I mean, well, I'm sure Psycop Cy- had to say that you cheated on this one. I don't. <laughs> how, how did you do this? I've never cheated. I didn't think so. I mean, with all of the... My goodness, I was watched and investigated up the gazoo for years and years and years and years, and there was just... No way that even if I wanted to, I could have done it. It had been found out. You know, there were oversight mm-hmm. committees. There was this and that and yeah. all kinds of tests and everything. Well, in our Hieronymus and Company newsletter number 8 to 10, we, we printed just a fraction of what you accomplished during the Jupiter. Do you remember that issue? Well, I do, um, yes. Um, 
what the skeptics say that what the skeptics do do they don't talk about cheating or anything like that they say he predicted there were mountains on Jupiter and there are none there and that's they all they refer to to mention the other things <laughs> yes, that's the, <laughs> that were that's, there that's called the psychop technique you only oh, well. you only hit on no, the things people are entitled to their beliefs and opinions and if they want to believe that that's fine with me Okay, but a minimum of 12 out of 13 must put you at least above 80%, that's for sure, and, and something like that, especially the old ring around Jupiter, which I thought was an extraordinary situation. I'm certain that most people thought you were wrong on that one. Oh, right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now, I'm glad you weren't locked up by Psycop about that. Now, you received a call in late... I don't want to talk about Psycops anymore on this program. Well, okay, we Is won't. that okay? That's okay by me, sir. Okay. Now, you received a call late in February 1975 from a highly placed functionary in D.C. What did he ask of you? He said somebody was going to call me, and would I try to do what they wanted me to do? And I said, okay. And he said he would deny ever having made this call to me if I ever mentioned it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, There were a few things like that went on early in my career, you know, which has been dotted every now and then with very kind of strange, weird type of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Well, about four weeks later, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you received a call from a Mr. Axelrod. Yep. What was important about that call? He asked me if I'd come to Washington and do some remote viewing for him, and I said he volunteered to pay me money, uh, which hardly anybody else volunteered to do at the time. So I said, yes, I would. So you were offered... And I went to Washington, and uh, there began this um, completely unanticipated, really highly strange um, series of events <laughs> that is so strange it's almost embarrassing to talk about them. So you were offered $1,000 a day. Yep. And what was your job? Actually, when he wanted me to remote view the moon, some uh, locations on the moon. He gave so you I said, well, sure. I mean, I mean we, we talked about Jupiter and things like that. And okay, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. So the moon was your destination. What were you told about the reason for going there? There was no reason. Mm -hmm. I wasn't told anything. Mm -hmm. Now, when you got to your destination... I mean, I, you have to realize that for years and years and years, I worked with any number of people who never told me anything. I mean, uh, they just said, here, we have a location for you to look at and tell us what you think there. So that's what I did. I'd never asked a question or I wouldn't get an answer anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, secret, the secret types are really, really secret. <laughs> well, when you got to your destination, you thought you were somewhere Well, let's Earth. see. When I got to the moon, I didn't think there was anything strange about the moon, actually. Um, uh, but when I saw the first human beings on the moon, I, I, I thought, oh, this is, I don't even know if I dare say this because he's going to say that this is just imagination and he won't pay me the $1,000, you know. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. But I had learned you have to say what you see no matter what, 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 what it is. So I said, oh, I think there's some people here, some guys. And then we did other locations and there was structures on the moon and buildings, and, oh, all kinds of stuff. And I got paid. How many, did, were you uh, doing this for two or three days? Actually, I think since it was done in underground someplace, I, 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 I think it was about three or four days. I, mm -hmm. That was 25 years ago or so, so I don't really remember, but I got a hefty amount of money. It was a good amount of money in those years. 
Well, you saw some people, as you noted, but you also saw tractor tread marks, lights, domes, towers. Uh, and, of course, what you were seeing were not ours, that is, Earth-made. Were you given any suggestions as to who may have put these things up here or up there? I mean, right away, it was, I said to Mr. Laxerod, I said, you know, these can't be ours. These are really, these are really, these are not ours, are they? He didn't sort of, you know, gritted his teeth a little bit and wanted to say yes or no on it. So, but, I mean, it was obvious that, that these things weren't ours, and some of them were, seemed to be quite old, too, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, I got paid, and um, I thought that was the end of it. Well, Mr. Axelrod, what was the reason for his asking your help? Well, as it turned out later on after some other developments had taken place, in this first time when I was with him, um, he kept, every once in a while, he would refer obliquely to telepathy and what did I know about telepathy and so forth and so on. And I actually didn't know very much at that time, but I did, well, I knew more than most people, but not a whole lot. And so I told him what I knew, and, and, and uh, it, it, I, I thought that his interest was in remote viewing the moon. But in fact, in retrospect, he already knew what was on the moon, and his main interest was in telepathy. Mm-hmm. And um, because the people on the moon are not us, of course, and they were so, it was so shocking to say it, you know, it's so incredible that they knew I was there telepathically at that time when I first saw them, I, I mentioned, I think they know that I'm here because they all were looking in my direction kind of type of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So the, the actual, the hidden agenda of this remote viewing thing was uh, telepathy. And that in, indeed turned out to be the case of, uh, a year later. Well, as you pointed out, and I would imagine he did as well, Axelrod, the ETs were apparently not happy about our manned missions to the moon. Um, does that have anything to do with, as we'll touch on this in depth later on, with our abandoning our moon program? Well, I don't know if the ETs were happy with us on the moon or not, uh, but after a decade of spending the United States of America and the Soviet Union spent enormous amounts of money um, and, and with the purpose of colonizing the moon to use it as a space platform for other uh, space adventures. And um, in 1972 and three, this was just dropped. And um, it, as some other radio guy said, it wasn't just put on the back burner. It was just taken off the stove altogether. Mm-hmm. And there is a question why we never went back to the moon, neither we not, or the Soviet Union. And that, that remains an open question, which nobody pays much attention to because the, it got replaced with the space platforms and uh, trips to other planets and mm-hmm. things like that. But the moon, we've never been back until just recently, as a matter of fact. Well, you believe you were sensed, as you noted earlier, by these humanoids and thus learned that there was a risk factor in remote, remote viewing the moon, and you referred to their sensing process as telepathy plus. What did you mean by that? Well, it's very hard to, I mean, there's a lot of things I can't explain. Let's, let's establish that. I just don't know how to explain them. But here I am on Earth, remote viewing the moon. And on the moon, I encounter some guys doing something. I don't know what they were doing. 
and they were looking at the place that I thought I was looking at them from. And, uh, I mean, what what of me was on the moon that they could look at it where, where I was? This, see, this, this doesn't quite make sense. But they weren't looking at me back on Earth. They were looking, like, at the place where I thought I was looking at them on the moon. And I said, well, you know, this is a very um, highly developed kind of telepathy, if indeed it is telepathy, or it should be even called that. And... Um, there are, it's just something that I can't really explain, um, amongst many other things I can't explain. But it, it indeed happened that way. So they, they sensed you, but and they looked in your general direction, sensing you. Is that correct? Well, so, yes, in a, in a certain sense. But actually, since I was on Earth, right. I didn't really have a general direction on the moon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but I was someplace looking at them in the proximity of them, so I could to be able to, to perceive them. You know? And that's what you were... And that's what they were looking at. They were looking at that place where something was about me. Well, you did drawings of what you saw, and yeah. you wrote about 15 pages of notes for Axarod, and you never saw those notes again. No. And you pledged 10 years of confidentiality. Yes. Axarod promised you feedback for your psychic spying, yes. and eventually you did get it of sorts. And when we return... Uh, we'll find out what kind of feedback you've got, and then we'll talk a little bit about that source of information and a few others. By the way, friends, I believe it's uh, perhaps next week. Next week we will have Fred Steckling's son, I believe. Yes, oh, his son. That's Did, fabulous. Yeah, we, he's joined us in the past before, and uh, you certainly have lit a fire under us to check him out once again. And, of course, we're trying to track down George Leonard, and we have already... Um, uh, located and talked to William Corliss uh, concerning his wonderful section and uh, his his research material. But unfortunately, Mr. Corliss does not do radio interviews, so we won't be able to follow up on that. Our guest is Ingo Swan, and we're discussing his profound new book entitled Penetration, The Questions of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. We'll be right back after this. My name is Jonathan Meter. I just was interviewed on Bob Aronimus's 21st Century Radio program, a fascinating program that I think a lot of you are going to enjoy. I was talking about two of my books. One is In Praise of Women, which I did 20 years ago, and the other is Ancient Egyptian Symbols, 50 New Discoveries. My wife and I discovered the meaning of a lot of the most important symbols, and leading Egyptologists agree that we're right. You can learn more about our books and about my artwork at jmeader.com, jmeader.com. We are back on 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we'll return now to our guest. Well, as we noted, you did some drawings and about 15 pages of notes, which you never saw again, but you obviously did reproduce some of this material, so... In what form, and you were promised some type of feedback on your so-called psychic spine, in what form did the feedback come in? Well, although uh, Mr. Axelrod sequestered all of my paperwork that I did for him, I, a few days after I was back in New York from Washington, I just made some sketches of the kind of structures I saw. And so eventually I got him in anonymous in the mail, a book by George Leonard entitled uh, Somebody Else is on the Moon. And uh, a lot of my 
sketches uh, corresponded to some of his sketches. Mm -hmm. And he had used NASA photographs and with his um, great, um, I guess, photo-interpretive and analytical mind had seen things in these photographs that nobody else could see very, 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 very well. Mm -hmm. But it was a staggering book because um, his, um, his conclusions, I think, well, it, it, for somebody else to say somebody else was on the moon, that was the first time I really ever heard about it, except my own sighting of somebody else on the moon, you know. So it was a terrific book, and uh, some of my drawings matched some of his drawings. And I said, good heavens, look at this. There's something going on on the moon that nobody else is ever referring to, and that's when I really started trying to find other sources to support the hypothesis that mm -hmm. there are intelligent stuff going on on the moon. Well, I, th I guess that, I don't recall exactly what date of that book. I guess that was in it the early 70s. It came out in hardback. I received in the mail a hardback thing in 1975. 75. And then the next year it came out in paperback. Mm -hmm. I think it was a Valentine book. I can't really remember. It's a mighty difficult book to put your hands on, let me tell is you. Is it, really? Yes, it is. We, we've um, uh, contacted several sources, Arcturus Books and Amazon.com, et cetera, and everyone's looking for a copy. Uh, but it's a tough even to find. Uh, however, there are others that are more easily uh, I'm sorry, locatable. it was Pocket Books that published it in 1975. Was it Pocket Books? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a paperback one, yes. Now, a former NASA contractor named, named uh, Donna Tietze has gone public with her experience learning that NASA routinely airbrushes UFOs out of their photos. This was reported in our newsletter uh, number seven. Is there other evidence that confirms this, this airbrushing out of um, un uh, unwanted things within NASA photos? Well, there's a lot of photos that got through before they realized they had to airbrush things out. Um, it's it's a pretty confusing story, but um, there's some pretty. Um, we're we're talking about a cover-up of stuff going on on the moon, right? Right. And if you permit me to take a minute here to put it in perspective, I'd be glad to do so. Go ahead, sir. Um, have you seen the movie Enemy of the State? No, I haven't. It's about the um, high degree of technology that the CIA has that can read from a satellite 400 miles in the sky they can read a gum wrapper in the gutter of New York City right right so this is called high-resolution photography is that not right that's that's, that's very very high-resolution photography you know they can read license plates and they can from the satellites they can follow stolen cars it's just tremendous tremendous technology to see very high-resolution stuff. Um, the moon has been photographed um, for, I don't know, over a century now. And beginning in the 60s, various kinds of high-resolution photography equipment were available, and they increased into the 70s. And uh, they could certainly be used um, all around, you know. Uh, Clementine, the Army uh, Survey of the Moon, it, took place in 1993, I guess, uh, had all sorts of cameras aboard. Presumably, they would have had high-resolution cameras aboard, right? Right, in So you should be able to read gum wrappers in a crater in on the moon, right? Well, we should be able to, but I haven't seen any photos of that. There is no high-resolution photography of the moon available 
anywhere from any time period. It's just not a- available. And, in fact, the highest resolution uh, where is taken from 200, 2,000 miles in the sky over, over the moon. And um, if there's anything that's significantly showing it, it is. There's evidence is quite convincing that it is airbrushed out by whoever does that kind of stuff. You know? mm-hmm. So there's no high-resolution photography of the moon. And this is a very interesting question because there should be. There should be gobs of it. You know, we have 60-inch telescopes. We have 100-inch telescopes looking at the moon and so forth and so on. You ought to be able to see quite a bit. None. Nada. Nothing. Nothing is available along these lines. And um, this is, I suppose, a cover-up, but the scope of it is just astronomical. It's just a tremendously big project to keep high-resolution photography of the moon, our nearest neighbor, out of the public domain. 1994, I believe, was when Clementine went up, and we were promised that we were going to take a look at some high-resolution shots of the moon. Yes, and as you we note, we, we just didn't see them. Never. Um, and as a matter of fact, there, there have been other instances in regard to that as well. So it suggests that there may be something up there. That uh, yeah, let's be a bit stronger. Can we say suggest that there is something up there? Okay, if you'd like to say that, I agree with that. Well, it, it's not maybe. <laughs> I mean, if there's no high-resolution photographs permitted into the public, that says that there is something up there that shouldn't be seen, okay? Well, I can go along with that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when we get into, there's a whole section you have on telescopes yes. that I found fascinating because uh, I had not paid enough attention to this that, that say, for instance, what if we went out on the market and said, "Now, we want to purchase a good-sized telescope to see what's going on in these craters out there." What's about the largest size? Sixteen tele- inches. About sixteen inches. Uh, to get something bigger, you have to go up into five, six figures. Um, sixteen inches, uh, and it, it's very confusing because it's very hard to get a, a conclusive answer to this. I'll be honest with you. But I think 16 inches is about the biggest you're going to get, and with that you can see something the size of a football field or maybe two football fields. Mm -hmm. So if you see a dot on the surface of the moon with one of these uh, available telescopes, that dot is about the size of a football field or more, and that's not very high resolution. You can't read gum wrappers inside that dot, in other words. That's correct. But I could be wrong. Um, I did my best. I I tracked down this telescope problem for over a year and a half, and mm-hmm. um, I think that in general, what I've just said is more or less the case. What size telescope might you project that we would need to see some of these things on the moon? Well, there's the 60-inch ones and the 100-inch ones um, in California that obviously have been used to look at the moon, and you should be able to see uh, if. There is a dot that's a football field. You should be able to see the bleachers and the gold mine, gold, gold markers and stuff in that so with that kind of telescope. What are the problems in getting hold of a 60-inch to 100-inch telescope and taking a look for ourselves? They're all under government control. Yeah. So they can be out there, but getting to use them is another story. Isn't that so right? You can't use them. No. And they have been used. And um, one of the reasons that you just can't go look at it is because they have been used see what's there and anybody would know that you if you used it you could see that too so i guess mm-hmm. it, 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 you know 
I, I hate conspiracies, and there has to be some really good reason to say that there is a conspiracy, but uh, this matter of high-resolution photographs of the moon and telescopes is just a gaping hole. It is. It, it woke me up again, because I had forgotten about a, num a great deal of this material, and that's why I wanted to go uh, from A, B, C, D, E, especially this first hour, to point these things out to our listeners who who are very skeptical about this kind of thing. Ingo, go see Enemy of the State. It's a wonderful. It's a very, it's a very gripping movie and everything like that. And you'll learn about the state of the art of high resolution spying equipment. Uh, and and I know personally that that was the state of the art in 1985, and it's now 1999. So there must be even better stuff now. But if you go see that movie, you will get the idea what a high-resolution photograph should consist of, and we have none of them regarding the moon. With well, a being that you saw on the moon, as uh, you noted, what was one, wasn't wearing any clothes. Well, there were several of them. There were several. And they were humans, just like we were, mm -hmm. so far as I could tell, and they didn't have any clothes on. They didn't have any clothes at those ETs on the moon. But later in Los Angeles, uh, which you nickname and others have La La Land, you met an alleged E.T. in a supermarket. I didn't quite meet her. No, you, okay. <laughs> you saw her. You saw her. Well, Tell I was us giving about a dinner experience. party for uh, somebody down there when I was staying with a friend, and we went to the supermarket to the shop, and there was, I was going to have stuffed artichokes. You know, I'm a gourmet cook on the side. And as I got into the vegetable part, there was this incredibly sexy gal standing at the artichokes looking through them, you know, and I, it just was, she had you know, maybe three inches of clothing on and um, dark glasses, and she was just statuesque and everything. I said, oh, my God, would you look at that? So I went over there and started fiddling with the artichokes, trying to, you know, I was obviously casing her out the side of my eyes and everything like that, and I got the strangest feeling. The, the hair on my arm sort of, you know, I got goosebumps all over and stuff, and I, and I said, it just dawned on me that this woman was an extraterrestrial. And I would have thought that was my imagination, of course. And But when I had worked with Mr. Axelrod, he had two guys that sort of haunted things around and so forth. And I sort of was, I sort of stepped back from this gal and I looked, got out the corner of my eye, saw one of these guys, you know, about um, 60 feet away watching her and watching me. And I, and I turned around and there was the other one that was these. Two of Mr. Axelrod's henchmen were there, I guess, following this gal around. Mm -hmm. And I put this together right away, and I said, oh, I've stepped into something that I don't belong in. So I skedaddled and went and hid in the bread department while I tried to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing to do was to get out of, to the get out of there. Store. Yeah. <laughs> well, a few days after encountering this, um, this uh, being in the supermarket, you did receive a call Axel from Axelrod. Axelrod called me up, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and what? He, he was very concerned about whether she had made telepathic contact with me. He was really, really worried about that. And I said, I didn't think so. But um, I just, you know, this was a completely untoward uh, event, and I just knew right away that this whole problem is they know, there are Earth people who know that there are ETs on the moon. They know there are ETs, and, they, and the big problem is the ETs can read our minds telepathically, but we can't read theirs because mm -hmm. our telepathy, telepathy is not developed enough. And that's, that was the real problem that Mr. Axelrod was really involved in at the time. Well, pretty important problem. 
Uh, Axelrod asked you to let him know when you achieved 65% accuracy in your psi work. After yes. you did so in July of 77, you uh, met him in the lobby of SRI, and he asked you if you'd like to see a UFO. Is yes. that correct? That's right. Yeah, then you were flown to somewhere probably around Alaska, and uh, we have about three minutes to touch on this now, and we can continue it in the next hour. What did you experience uh, Well, when he said, did I want to see a UFO, I said, sure, and I thought we would go someplace to a hangar and see a captured UFO sitting there, you know. <laughs> but instead, we got an airplane, and we flew and flew and flew and flew, and we ended up by some lake, which was in the far north and so forth and so on. And we were sitting there waiting for this UFO to appear. It, and um, this is this is just this tale is so unbelievable. I just it's just hard for me to uh, keep calm about it. Even now, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can get upset over this. Mm-hmm. Emotionally involved in it. Do you want me to say what the UFO was? Well, yes, because I found this very surprising. Well, I was sitting there thinking that a UFO, you know, a uh, you know, an upside down high plate would come hoving into view somehow or something like that, and that's not what happened at all. Over this lake, uh, some uh, purple fog or something began to form, and pretty soon there was a little pinpoint of light in it, and then it turned into a little tiny triangle. There was all sorts of lightning bolts going on, except there wasn't a sound. It was just silent, silent, silent. And this thing grew out of nothing in thin air to become a very, very large triangle over this water and it started shooting stuff into the bush, um, probably trying to get us and things. And at the last, they dragged me out of there really fast. And the last time I saw that thing, this it was, you know, just a big triangle with sorts of wavy lines and lights and things like it was from another dimension. It wasn't a thing. It was a, sort of another dimension. But it was sucking up the water from the lake, just like Niagara Falls going up instead of down. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the UFO that I saw. It's hard to call it a UFO. Are you, are you saying that because it was triangular and grew rather than it, was just it, there? It wasn't a flying object. It mm-hmm. just appeared. You know. Anyhow, I never got. It just took me a long time to get over that. Well, you surmise that this triangle UFO was a drone, unfriendly to both humans and animals. And that the Eskimo people that were selling the hot dogs up there. <laughs> up there. It goes from bad to worse. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> after I published this book, after I had this book printed and it was for sale, I found out about the the water fairies, as they're called in um, Australia, where people seeing these round UFOs come down and suck up water from their lakes and things like that. There's a, um, a video that the Australians have produced on this, which is really quite excellent. Well, what excellent is excellent right now is we must stop at this point, and we'll be back with our guest, Ingo Swan, the book Penetration, one of the most important books we've ever read. We'll be back in a few minutes. Our guest is Ingo Swan. We're discussing his important new book entitled Penetration, the Questions of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. To order, visit him on the web at www.biomindsuperpowers.com. Well, as I've been saying, friends, for the past few weeks, I urge you to order a copy of this book right away. Don't put it off. You will not be able to put it down once you start reading it because it will change the way you think about, well, just about everything. Be sure to tell them when you purchase a copy that Hieronymus and company sent you. Okay, Ingo, 
So we've been told basically that the moon is a dead planet. There's no air. There's no water. There's no life. At least that's what we were told there uh, for from about 1960, late 60s to about 1972 until until more recently. Things have certainly changed considerably about that. Now, um, we want to get into this thing called spin doctorism or doctorism. But before we do that, I, I need to talk about information comfort zones. What are information comfort zones? And uh, as a matter of fact, you note that this is where most humans like to be. Well, let's see. Are you asking me? No. Yes, sir. I yeah, am asking okay. you. <laughs> An information comfort zone. People don't like to hear information that disturbs their comfort, right? Right. Um, uh, me too, I suppose. Um, uh, but some people have a higher tolerance, have a bigger, higher tolerance for information. They have bigger comfort zones and things like that. But uh, an information comfort zone is you don't want to hear anything that disturbs this comfort. And this can be quite narrow. No, and one of the comfort zones having to do with the moon is that it was established since, well, since probably 1910 at least, up until just recently, that it, it had no air, it had no atmosphere, and uh, it had no water and uh, everything like that, and it was a dead planet, couldn't support life of any kind. And uh, so, I mean, we've all been taught that. I was taught that. Um, and uh, everybody's been taught it until just recently. Mm-hmm. But as a matter of fact, as you note, and others have noted in the past, that that uh, over the past three or four decades, even beyond that, there was indications that there was indeed water oh, they and air on the moon. They knew it in the 50s. They knew it in the 20s. They knew it in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. They, the NASA program to go to the moon knew, absolutely knew, that there was some kind of atmosphere on the moon and, and with a high probability of water. And now in this decade, in the last two years, um, the existence of a great deal of water on the moon has been confirmed. It's frozen in the ground, but it's still there. And the weak atmosphere has been confirmed, too. And uh, so, I mean, in, in, the, in the 50s, uh, people had these 60-inch, 100-inch telescopes to look at the moon, and they knew that there was water and stuff there. Um, and in fact, um, there, it's unlikely that Earth people, Americans and Soviets, were going to colonize a planet that had no water. Mm-hmm. or no air. Uh, so they knew it. It was just something that was kept secret for a long time. It's one of the secrecies. So when anybody that you hear saying that there, if you now say that there's water on the moon and air on the moon, it disturbs a lot of people's comfort zones, especially academics whose uh, textbooks haven't caught up with the latest discoveries yet. But this is an about-face from almost a century of denying that there was air and water on the moon. It's a complete about-face. Who creates these uh, comfort zones? Who constructs oh, these realities that, of the information? Does, I think um, we're taught to fit into a comfort zone. and Actually, most of us are taught to fit into a particular society and a particular social echelon within that society and anything that extends any information that extends beyond that disturbs the comfort zone of the entire society. Mm-hmm. So I, it's not that we create them ourselves. They're sort of imprinted into us at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the point that I want to get to a little later on. You note that the big four, and that's the government, military, science, and media, 
uh, are part of the creating, th- those that create our comfort zone. Well, I think you have to include the big five. Academia goes in there, too. Um, yes, mm-hmm. I guess so. I mean, somebody creates uh, the greater social overview that everybody's programmed to fit into. There's no doubt about that. And it's the, um, the, the top of these social pyramids that decide how the society is supposed to be formatted, I guess, in a rough way anyway. And anyhow, we all have comfort zones, and we resent any information that disturbs those comfort zones. Mm-hmm. I think we find that in our da- daily existence and just about everything. Now, there is some evidence that indicates that, that the moon may be hollow. What can you tell us about that? Well, I would refer people to the scientific literature. In the, in the 60s, um, there were a number of scientific documents saying that the moon isn't as solid as we think, and um, even Carl Sagan made the uh, open statement that a natural satellite cannot be hollow, mm-hmm. and if the moon is hollow, then it's not a natural satellite. And uh, so this isn't me making this up or anybody else. This was published in scientific papers in the 60s and 70s. It's still being discussed today uh, that um, the moon is exceedingly strange that the whether it's a natural or an artificial satellite is much in question by now. It's that, that simple. That, and, and that's not even... And, and that's within science proper, actually. Well, you've referred to uh, William Corliss's compilation, The Moon and Other Planets, a catalog of astronomical anomalies as a most comprehensive resource, and also NASA's 1968 publication, Reported Lunar Events, National, NASA Technical Report R-277, and you explained that it was incomplete, that particular report. What kind of moon events did that report uh, present they only presented those kinds that didn't disturb anybody's comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, in fact, uh, Mr. Carlos's books are wonderful, but uh, they tend to be, you know, more focused on a conventional approach to all these things rather than a non-conventional approach. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's an extremely excellent reference book, however. But the thing that NASA got going about the anomalies on the moon... Um, um, it was it was published, made available in 1968. Uh, the chronological catalog of reported lunar events. These have to do with l- lunar anomalies, of which there are many thousands of them. And the only ones put in this book uh, were those that weren't didn't disturb uh, the comfort zones. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very strange report in 68, and one wonders why it was ever produced in the first place, because there are other books available, have been available all along, especially from the astronomers in Britain, which produce catalogs of all of the anomalous events, many of which do disturb people's comfort zones. You note that um, but the, the only photographs that they were discussing were those seen with the smallest of tele telescopes, and uh, there were 579 events that they reported of a total of 2,600. Well, there's even more than that, but uh, the British astronomers over there published a book uh, that included at least 2,600 anomalies. You know, some of these are lights that uh, come flying up out of craters in formation and and go in one direction formation and then seem to change their mind and change their (laughs) 
slight path information and go so go in another direction, you know. And um, this is indicative of intelligence guided flight, of course, and this disturbs everybody's comfort zones or everybody's cover up agendas and things like this. So that's where I'm omitted from this this NASA report. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, if you don't know too much, all this sounds very convincing. What NASA does and so forth and so on. But if you know a great deal, then then it becomes uh, actually a farce. I suppose is the best word for it. Well, this is a pretty serious farce. Uh, well, yes, but, I mean, good heavens, you know. I mean, talk about selecting data so that it fits with your comfort zone or your hidden agenda of cover-up and things like that. You know, you have to really eliminate a lot of data, a lot of stuff that you just simply have to go in with a, with a hatchet and chop off the things that you don't want in it. And that, there's, there's a big pile of chopped-up stuff. Yep, there is a good pile of chopped oh, yeah. up stuff, and as a matter of fact, it may have something to do with intellectual phase locking. Yes. Uh, how? What is intellectual phase locking, and how well, has it created a divided and rule divide and rule philosophy? There are some psychological papers on intellectual phase locking, but but to get the idea of it, if you have a group of people that have a certain com- in a mental comfort zone uh, that says. Like, you know, there are a few materialists around who think that everything is just matter. And so anything that comes along that says something, there may be more than matter, that disturbs their comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a group of people like this who think everything is just matter, and then they, they agree with each other and they become intellectually face-locked on this particular aspect of existence, and they think that's all it is. So a comfort zone is not just an individual thing. It has to be shared by a number of uh, people who who cloned it in themselves, actually. Cloned the same information within their own mindsets. And uh, um, face-locked situation is a mindset situation, which is just a number of people sharing an intellectual comfort zone. It's, it's hard to make real good sense of this. It takes a few pages to explain it all. Indeed. Well, we're obviously trying to cover some some difficult material here for our listeners who have probably heard this for the first time in their lives. Oh, I don't know. Everybody knows what. Well, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know about the listeners knows in this. what this means. Well, they, they may know what it means, but they don't necessarily know. The terms. The terms, yeah. correct. Now, uh, now, the reason why I've taken such a long time to get to these points concerning intellectual phase locking and, and uh, comfort zones is because it seems like the information is out there if we do the research, but you have to know where in the world to go and what to read to find it. And the big five seems to have their own vested interests. And, uh, and the, the big five, of course, would be government, academia, military, science, and media, somewhat the same types of things that uh, President Eisenhower was warning about us in a, uh, concerning uh, uh, the, the uh, military-industrial complex in a, in a simpler way of looking at it. Now, it seems to be that we are being, our education is being molded about certain things, and uh, especially not just about what's on the moon, but what telepathy is all about. And when we return, we'll ask uh, our guest, Ingo Swan, what telepathy is, because we've been told to view telepathy as mind to mind, and that may not be so. We'll be back with Ingo Swan. We're discussing his new book entitled Penetration, The Questions of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. We'll be right back.
Hello, this is Ellie Flippin, niece of the late psychic, visionary, artist, and extraordinary individual, Ingo Swan. You can learn more about his archives, his paintings, and his books at ingoswan.com. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Okay, so as far as the moon goes, we have been told that it's a dead planet. There's no use going there. And as far as telepathy goes, you note that telepathy is the most forbidden element of Earthside consciousness, and that this must have something to do with telepathy plus. Now, we touched on telepathy plus last hour, a few words on it, but what would another definition or the same definition of telepathy plus that you used last hour be? Well, we have uh, spontaneous manifestations of telepathy here on Earth, do we not? In all cultures, in all times, people yes. pick up on each other's thoughts. It used to be called thought transference. Mm-hmm. So we have it there, and it's sort of spontaneous. Uh, telepathy plus would be a de- highly developed form of this that takes it outside of just the realm of spontaneous activity and brings it into consciousness control. Mm-hmm. Well, science has forced us to view telepathy as mind-to-mind. How does this manage to cover up telepathy's true nature? Well, um, at the time the mind-to-mind thing came about was when the radio concept of radio broadcasting came about, uh, telegraphy was first called, uh, something like that, uh, sending information across the space by a broadcasting sender to a a receiver of some kind, and uh, at the time, telepathy was called hot transference, but was radio broadcasting and receiving was now scientifically uh, established, so uh, early psychical researchers just adopted that, that concept and called thought transference telepathy. This is broadcasting thoughts across space from mind to mind, and that's been the model uh, that we've had ever since about what telepathy absolutely must be mind sending information across the distance to another mind which receives it right right that that's our concept of telepathy right right well it turns out that all experiments based upon this model haven't worked very well and in normal science if a theory if a model doesn't work very well then they forget about it and get up another theory model uh, right? Right. They but there's do. never been another model for telepathy. Um, so it must be a comfortable model for somebody. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't enhance uh, telepathy or, you know, build it towards telepathy plus. It mm-hmm. just doesn't work because if something doesn't work after it's been fairly tested, then you have to say it's the wrong model, the wrong theory, right? Right. Yes. So, so what's the right one? Well, um, if you talk to people who have succeeded in some kind of thought transference experiments, you know what they say? What do they say? They don't say it's mind to mind. They say, oh, we were together. We, we were one temporarily there. We, we, we became one. We shared each other, uh, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that gets left out of this particular experience is the concept of distance. There's no distance. Involved. They don't say it's cross-distance. They were just with each other. That's a very important word in this context, being with together someone. So that's what uh, 
telepathy experiencers say. In fact, if there are many events uh, on record where mothers have sensed their child is in, in terrible danger, and they don't say they got this information across the distance. They were with that child when they felt that, and they sprang out of the kitchen or out of the living room and ran down the road to pluck their child up out of this danger type of thing. So experimenters aren't listening to what people are saying about what they experience. So this puts it in the realm of quantum physics, actually, where two events can uh, take place simultaneously with the distance between them having no apparent uh, affect one way or the other. So telepathy is a distanceless thing. It's a sort of a quantum thing where people are occupying the same space, feeling, sensation type of thing. So I don't know if that clears this up or not, but well, I, that. I think we are, we're moving to greater clarification here because of the points that I'm trying to make here is that, as we noted, uh, especially last hour and beginning of this, we have been given information by the big four or five uh, that indicate that the moon is dead, there's no use going there, etc. And, and now the same now, thing, four or five, is saying, oh, there's water, and there's... And correct. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so decades later, we're being told something else. Yes. And uh, then the same view that concerning telepathy as a mind-to-mind manages to cover up tele- telepathy's true nature, which is right. uh, that of being immediate and right. instead of separate, and also deals with universal consciousness. That's right. Now, the key to this is, in my opinion, universal consciousness, and I've been waiting to get to this all night, because, <laughs> because okay. I think this is important to why such information may be suppressed by the Big Five. Uh, okay. So... Tell us, what is meant by universal consciousness, and, and why might it be suppressed by the big four or five? Well, I don't know what's meant by universal consciousness. I mean, I have to stab around in the dark here, too, you know, a little bit. But consciousness, if it exists at all on Earth, must have uh, some similarities to consciousness if it exists elsewhere, right? Right. I mean, you know, uh, we, 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 we wouldn't necessarily think that human consciousness would be different from consciousness, uh, a cosmic form of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so if we would then say that consciousness in some form is universal to all life organisms, uh, then they, they sort of share in various aspects of, of universal consciousness. And for telepathy to exist in Earthside consciousness means that it's that the basis for it must exist within the universal consciousness, or it, it probably wouldn't exist here either. And we can say the same thing about life energy forces, that they must be similar everywhere they're found. Um, if they're too different, then, then the, this means that there are various elements in the universe which are not consistent with each other, and this leads towards chaos theory more than it does towards harmonious theory. And the universe obviously holds together because it's more harmonious than it is unharmonious. So we have to think in terms of similarities of consciousness. And if we have spontaneous telepathy here on Earth at some point, in some ways, then it's part and parcel of the whole consciousness package altogether. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say... the is that uh, what you had in mind? Well, we're still moving towards it, okay. Ingo. The uh, big four or five then are clinging to 
a particular definition of consciousness, and uh, they do not want to accept group consciousness or telepathy as the melding of consciousness. That's right. Because this means there is an independent uh, ob objective means of transfer. That's right. Now, I find that very important and very well, interesting. You, you just said it better than I could. I tend to get really wordy about these things. Well, that's only because I've read your book three times. I've read it backwards <laughs> oh, and forwards, it? inside and out. Uh, because oh, no, it's because you are who you are. You're a great person yourself, you know, and you, you're, you're used to making things sound easy. Well, the, uh, the aspect of independent or objective means of transfer. Now, this reminds me, let's go back, let's go back to the Middle Ages or before in which uh, much of our knowledge and information was controlled by the church. Oh, I don't talk about that. I, I know, but, but one of the situations in which we find, uh, and concerning with all the miracles that were being worked, etc., 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 there was a, an, a, an enormous attempt by the church to determine what people could read or know or, or even live by. If they didn't live by those things, then they could perish on this planet for one reason or the other. And it just seems to me that science today has moved in the same area that, well, I, I would say that the, the, some of the priests today are in, in white lab coats rather than wearing black frocks and little hats. Well, are you just a rabble-rouser here? <laughs> I'll, I'll put it from my viewpoint, if you don't mind. All right. Okay, consciousness in a social sense is always going to be controlled by some function, some faction within the in the society, right? It doesn't matter what which one it is. There's always a social control factor of what people are going to be permitted to. Oh, I guess duplicating themselves in order to fit into society. And uh, it is true that since the well, the 1300s or the 1200s, that there was an increasing rejection of the psychic phenomena. Um, but this was across the boards. So I don't can't say that the church was completely to blame for it. It was just a phenomenon that took place. But there had been several earlier ones in in, in the pre-Christian uh, past. You know, uh, people conquered each other and they wiped everybody out that they didn't like and so forth. They tore down gods and they told people what they could believe and not believe in anything. So this is part and parcel of the human condition and it shouldn't actually be laid at anybody's doorsteps because it's an ongoing thing within our earthside cultures. And and since it is, I mean, we could correct this if we wanted to. I mean, we could say, look, we're, the issues are important, the people aren't, and and um, we could come to terms with it, but the, but we 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 don't come to terms with it, and I think there might be an extraterrestrial reason for that um, to keep us from knowing too much. So that there would not only be, as we started out saying in the beginning of the program, uh, an earth earth-based psychics might not be happy about the existence of telepathy and that type of thing, but space side uh, psychics or beings uh, who were more, more capable in this particular area would not want us to develop those those kind of abilities. Now, concerning subliminal activities or subliminal communication, uh, you refer to them, and my concern has been, uh, of course, subliminal advertising in movies, TV, and print, etc. I understood that there were 
after Vance Packard brought out Hidden Persuaders and then other books followed in the decade or so afterwards, that there were laws passed about subliminal advertising in movies, TV, and print. Is that true? Weren't, it's not were, true. It's not true. It's not true. Um, I'll, I'll give you a name of a person you can discuss this with, but in general this is not true. It was put on a lot of, uh, on a, on a lot of agendas to think about what could be done about it, but... And, uh, but there's no way of enforcing such laws, and nobody wanted to establish them in the first place because subliminal stuff sells toothpaste, you know. I mean, you can get a lot of money out of subliminal seduction. But the authority on this would be Eldon Taylor, Ph.D., mm-hmm. if you ever heard of him. Eldon Taylor. Yes, mm-hmm. subliminal communication as a whole. Uh, this is his big thing. Um, so, no, in fact, then, I'm wrong in thinking that we were protected in the oh, late no, 60s. No, we're not protected at all. Um, it goes on all the time. And, in fact, um, if you want to find an area of research that uh, the conventional society, social systems get more upset about than anything, it's subliminal communication. I, the, the, the uproars about this, uh, far exceed the uproars about psychic phenomena, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's just tremendous resistance to doing any organized research into subliminal communication. Tremendous uproars. And uh, the ones against, of course, telepathy is a subliminal thing, too. So mm-hmm. almost all of the psychic things are partake more of the subliminal realms than they do the liminal ones. But uh, uh, no, we're not protected against these uh, subliminal seduction things. Not at all. I'm shocked, because I thought we were. Nope. That's how naive I was, friends. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I think this is an important work, just one, and one of the reasons why you should have it in your library, if not uh, your local library or school library, because it's my feeling that if uh, subliminal advertising is going on, or activities are still going on, then then individuals are being ob- always being pressured into purchasing things that they don't want, that aren't good for them, etc., 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 and not focusing on what is inside of them rather than what is outside of them that is important and which is the main goal of 21st Century Radio. Remember, we have two laws on 21st Century Radio that I'm sure that Ingo Swan is not aware of. The first law is that we are not alone in the universe and never have been. That's key to 21st century radio. And you know what the other law well, is? Well, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> well, what's the other one? What do you think the other one is? I don't know. That human beings come in at least two parts. One is mortal and the other is immortal. Oh. And it's the immortal. <laughs> I know that, too. <laughs> well, that makes anyway. for in, th- in this part of the country, in this part of the town of of uh, Baltimore and Owings Mills, etc., that is radical thinking. But it's it's obvious to me, at least to most people, that that's just ordinary, old hat, run of the mill stuff. But unfortunately, that's not the way it gets presented in the media today, or the Big Five of government, academic, military, science, and media collaboration, which I like to talk about an awful lot. Well, friends, we're going to take our final break on 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Ingo Swan, and we've been discussing his new book entitled Penetration, The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. 
Hello, this is Nancy Duterte. I'm the author of How to Talk to an Alien, and you can find out more about my work at theskepticalpsychic.com or talkalien.com. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. He is one of the most generous radio show hosts I have ever had the pleasure of working with. I think I'm going to call him Hieronymus the Magnanimous. Thank you. Let's get right back to our guest. Ah, uh, yes. Now, Ingo, we're going to be doing some summarizing here. So, there are two factors that I want to emphasize here. One deals with the moon, the other deals with telepathy, and they're both kind of like interconnected in the taboo area. And that is, uh, let's go back to the Cold War idea regarding the moon, was that the first Earth-side superpower to colonize it would rule the Earth from the space-side natural satellite. The U.S. got there first in July of 1969, never returned after December of 1972, which is just three years later. We touched on this last hour, but I want to review it. Why does this make little sense? Well, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all, uh, unless um, there was a very good reason to not go back to the moon. And I can't say that I know that there what that reason was, but there, there certainly was a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they left three of the Apollo things that were fully built and ready to go. They just left them rotting on the patch, you know. And so this was a big betrayal, at least in financing all of this stuff to the moon. Just not do it. So there, there had to be a very good reason. And one reason could very well be that the moon is already occupied. And... Um, got told to stay away. The Soviets didn't go back either. Mm-hmm. Well, there have been, in, in, in regards to this, there have been, uh, well, at least the 1995 Clementine mission was sent to map the moon in detail. But, again, these high-resolution photos have yet to be seen by the public. And I think perhaps the reason may be is that maybe they show us things that, they, that NASA doesn't want us to see. Do you think that's radical thinking? Well, there's a reason for... For all this, um, I mean, it doesn't take much to say that, okay, they did high-resolution photography. It showed things they don't want us to see so that we don't get the high-resolution photography. Uh, the warning to keep away from the moon, if indeed that did occur, must have been accompanied by a very convincing demonstration of what would happen if we didn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a big story here somewhere behind the scenes, and somebody who breaks into it, some intrepid uh, reporter, investigative reporter is going to make his, his life fortune out of this if he cracks this wide open, and I think somebody should crack it open. Well, I think with the kind of work that you've done and some others that, that they'll take some risks now in cracking it open, Ningo. Um, in regards to, say, for instance, back to the big four or five, government, academia, uh, military, science, and media collaboration, Together, they've conditioned the public about the lunar anomalies, saying basically that the um, moon was dead. There's no reason to go there. There's no air there. There's no water there. But in recent years, very recent years, 97 onward, we are finding that NASA is saying that uh, there is indeed a modicum of water there, maybe maybe more than a modicum, and that there must be some type of atmosphere, even though the photographs that NASA has... uh, at least some of them that I have seen in, in Stecklin's books as well, indicate that they were clouds, they were va- vapors, etc. Oh, yes, they're, they're clear as day, some of these things, you know. 
Jacqueline's book is really wonderful, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it, truly wonderful. It's an updated version, which has just come out. I guess you've already seen that. I haven't seen it. You don't In have a fact, copy? In fact, I don't even have my copy of the Steckling book because Antonio Hunis loaned me his for a couple of years, and then he came and took it back. Well, the dirty rat. And I would love to have a copy of the Steckling book. Well, I'll tell you what, just for doing... <laughs> <laughs> for joining us here on 21st Century Radio, we are awarding you not only Steckling's a copy book? of yes, oh, we're going to award you a copy of Steckling's book. But not only that, we're going to obviously uh, send you a copy of the UFO Encyclopedia, oh, volumes one and two, courtesy of Dave Bianco at On the Graphics. And by the way, Dave Bianco, they they send us these these books, friends, because. They are into the same type of things that we are, and that is education. They don't give away $142 worth of volumes here to 21st Century Radio so that we can just go out and sell their stuff. They know that we put them in the hands of researchers like Ingo Swan, Bud Hopkins, and, and, and John Mack, and others. And that, obviously, uh, is very kind of good old Dave Bianco at Omnigraphics. And we'll send you also a copy. We should be getting an updated version of Fred Steckling's book. Would you prefer his updated one or the older one? Well, I guess the updated one. Yeah, that's a better one to get. I okay. mean, you know. Um, the, by the way, the the thing about the water and, and uh, atmosphere on the moon, um, there was no way to sit on it anymore because too many the Japanese were getting were publishing papers on this, mm-hmm. the scientific papers, and the Russians were leaking it out. You know, after the Soviet Union fell, all, all their scientific documents started being sold around the world, and there was no way to uh, keep that particular element secret anymore. So the Americans had to admit up to it, and they pretended they're the ones to discover it, but. Uh, Actually, it's been known all along. It's just that it couldn't keep that one covered up anymore. So that's why we have that. It's the very. It's very similar to what happened with the, with the, um, uh, life on Mars, <laughs> which I've seen the reports back in 1976. Uh, that confirmed some type of life on Mars. NASA definitely knew this. Uh, As a matter of fact, it was presented to them repeatedly, and uh, conveniently in 1997, they came out with the big statement. (laughs) Yes, I know. Now, Bob, I was going to ask you one thing. You talk about the big four, the big five. Yes. Well, who's the big one that keeps all them in order? Well, do do you think I know? I think you probably have some idea. Well, I have some ideas, but I certainly couldn't prove it. It seems to me that there that there would be or are uh, some uh, international um, corporate powers here that I think are are beyond uh, uh, well are beyond touch of anyone within within our government of the United States. Well, but, everybody knows that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you and, and I have known it for forty years. Doesn't mean that doesn't mean that our listeners that. knew that. Well, Who's I, the big one over all these international consortiums. Well, that I don't know. Oh come on! I, well, who would you say it is? Well, I'll let you be the first to announce it. <laughs> oh, what if? Let's say what if it's the ETs themselves. Well, I guess I mean, you, you, you know, must we, be saying. I mean, we can do hypotheses here. Maybe yeah. the ETs are mind-managing us through some kind of subliminal telepathy. And what advantage would it be to them I don't know. to keep us in the dark? I don't know. Um, 
maybe so that we wouldn't go up and bother them on the moon or Mars or wherever they might be? Or well, maybe, maybe they want to keep their telepathy channels as free of noise as possible. <laughs> it could be something rather simple, you know, with all these earthlings tuning in with their messed up telepathy and so forth and so on. I mean, it might, it might uh, you know, ruin the, ruin the telepathy in this sector of the universe. Who knows? <laughs> then, well, the first the first aspect I wanted to point out was in concerning the moon and the problems we have in trying to get information about the moon. But something that I uh, had not paid enough attention to is just how difficult it is to get accurate information out about telepathy, which was an important part of your work here. And and I think that um, uh, that if if one feels that telepathy is as important as we think it is then there must be a great deal of fear on Earth-side elites, as you call them, and, and space-siders, that perhaps this is an area neither of them want us to become involved in, which, which of course, is detrimental to our development here on, on planet Earth, because I always thought that, that we were supposed to uh, evolve over a period of, of generations so that these things, these uh, attributes, become natural, normal kind of things, rather than extraordinary. you have any comment on that? Well, the evolution and development are two different things. You know, I mean, evolution takes millions of years to get about with. You know, development can happen in three months. We're, we're not supposed to develop outside of what we're, you know, we're supposed to fit into a society. We're supposed to fit into an ideological comfort zone, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, when, you know, whether it's Afghanistani or Chinese or Hindustani or American or Canadian or something like that. We're supposed to fit into it. And if we do too much developing, then we become misfitted for these slots. And so development, uh, I mean, when you think the only thing we're supposed to develop is money-making schemes, we're not supposed to develop anything else too much. I mean, that's my considered opinion after 65 years of this arduous life I've been living. Now, have you attempted to remote view the moon since your meeting with Axelrod? Oh, no comment. No comment. Okay. Now, you state that Earth-side elites are usually intellectually phase-locked on the thrill of having secrets. Why Did is I that? Did I say that? That's what you said, page 203, Rules and Regulations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> having sharing in a secret is, is one thing that brings about really great phase-locking, intellectual phase-locking. I mean, if people that have a secret to share between them are really intellectually phase-locked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secrets are what makes the world go around, apparently, believe it or not. So, uh, oh, yes, I guess I would have said that, wouldn't I? Yes, you did. As a matter of fact, uh, and my question, of course, is this the reason why unveiling secrecy sells in the tabloids in the media? Are we uh, on a lower Lower scale, like the intellectual or the uh, intellectually phase-locked uh, Earthside elites. Oh, I don't know. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. You can't keep a secret. I mean, there are too many squawkers and squealers and people who will sell secrets for money. So the best way to hide a secret is to admit that it, it uh, to admit what it is, but then make it so confused that nobody can believe it. And so the best way to hide a secret is to leak it into the public and then say it's all a bunch of. Uh, horse manure, mm-hmm. and then so nobody pays it any attention. It's in plain sight there, but nobody pays it really, and it gives it any credibility. Mm-hmm. And that is the best way to hide a secret. Like Sherlock Holmes. Yep. Her, Sherlock Holmes used to put his secrets right out, right. <laughs> right in front of everyone. Right. 
in, in, a, in a book that, that you didn't have to, have to hide, and no one was curious enough to dig that's into right. the book. That's right, yeah. So that seems to be... I've, I've tried to study this uh, secrecy-making and secrecy-maintenance type of thing for as best I could, and, and it does turn out that you can't really depend on keeping a secret a secret because somebody's going to squeal. So as, as I already mentioned, the best way is to have it leaked out and then say it's stupid and foolish and, and non, non-scientific. <laughs> well, let me ask you a stupid, foolish, and non-scientific question then. Yeah. And that deals with when do you think that the, the big five or the big four, or whatever you want to call them, are going to determine that we're worthy of knowing a little bit of what they know concerning the existence of UFOs and ETs? Oh, I think that depends on the big one that controls the big five. So perhaps permission has has been temporarily granted by the big one, which in this case would be ETs? Is that the reason why they're telling us right now that we should be going back to the moon or, the, or Mars or what have you, because we've got permission? I don't know. Um, well, neither do we. Um, uh, first of all, we're not going to go to Mars because it, the 18 months it'll take to get there, nobody had arrived there alive, so it can only be mechanically done. Mm-hmm. And actually, we don't go back to the moon physically. We just send little snoop ships up. And then we say we, they sent back information. But we have since we don't get the information they sent back, we don't know whether they were shot down or not. Well, we're shot down right about now, friends. I want to thank you for joining us. Ingo Swan, the book Penetration, Questions of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. See you next week. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.